This is How to Reach the West Again, a podcast that aims to inspire and empower a fresh missionary encounter with Western culture. I'm your host, Brandon O'Brien. For the whole of season two, we're talking about cities. What are they? What does the Bible say about them? How do we plant churches there? What does it mean to really love and serve our cities? I'm joined today by Robert Guerrero. Robert is a vice president and catalyst for Redeemer City to City and director of the Latino Initiative for City to City North America. He was also my pastor for a season when we both lived in the Washington Heights neighborhood of New York City, which makes me a highly biased interviewer, I admit. Born to Dominican parents in New York City, Robert has lived and planted churches in New York, the Dominican Republic, and Chicago, and he now lives and works in Miami. In this conversation, he talks about how he learned to navigate majority culture metrics and narratives about church planting and what we stand to gain by making room for marginalized voices in church planting conversations. Robert Guerrero, thank you for being with us on the podcast. It's an honor to have you here. It's good to be here. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to share with you guys. It's, you know, to be with you guys is fun all the time. So well, I love, I love it. This is not the place for impartial, objective reporting because I'm a big fan of yours, and uh, I'm glad to have you in the chair here. Oh, it's uh, very, very honoring and humbling. Thank so, you. So you've got a breadth of experience in planting in lots of really diverse places. I wonder if you could give us just kind of a, a quick overview. I know I'm asking a lot, but kind of of your trajectory from in ministry in church planting and the, and the kind of spaces that you work in now. How, how where'd you start? How'd you get into them? And kind of give us a, a, a quick view of your experience there. I became a Christian in a church plant in the, in my neighborhood in Dominican Republic. So. <clears throat> Churches uh, weren't reaching my demographic, which were uh, the street kids and you know gang bangers, and that and a lot of in that time gangs were very uh, common and defined. It was turf uh, mentality, and and the 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 churches that were uh, non-Catholic that were missional, reaching people, trying to grow. They weren't reaching. We were like flown over. So we we didn't identify with what the setting. So this church plant um, was basically birthed in our neighborhood to reach us. And my spiritual father is a, um, uh, a, 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 a missionary uh, who's uh, from Holland. <laughs> And uh, and Jay Naura, his name couldn't be as you know, I mean, as white as you can be, but this dude just got into the neighborhood. So so my shape, like my church experience, which I was on church, was that birthing this organic, this highly relational and missional space. And uh, so I loved it. I, I love that. And uh, you know, when I came to Jesus, my desire and passion was to see my my street buddies come to Jesus. So. In the church planting environment, it's easy to bring them in. You're so hungry for a warm body in the room that you accept anybody, right? So when churches get what I call, you know, I got this from Edwin McManus, when we get civilized, suddenly the church is not as um, welcoming or easy to break into when you come from my background. And, and you know, so that I noticed that pretty soon. So I always push for, let's start something new. And I, I, I mean... Even before I was baptized, 
I became part of this SWAT team, they call it, to start new uh, you know, outreaches in, in difficult places, and the church being the most welcoming thing for them. But then <clears throat> the awakening also, and this happened after I was like already in ministry and church planting, is that the, 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 the neglected people from the margins— that the poor, the, the most uh, uh, disenfranchised, not just street kids and troublemakers and, you know, that aren't church, but the disenfranchised, I was finding as I read the scripture, wait a minute, these are centered in Jesus' attention, but what's happening with the church? And uh, so then God called me to, you know, full-time ministry or ministry as vocation because, you know, people were identified, hey, man, you preach good. And <laughs> And you like to teach, and they love, you know, and you have this passion. And so I went into it and I said, you know, um, if I do it, it's to help start these kind. Of, we didn't call it church planting, but it was, it was just do church yeah. for this kind of people. So, um, so then I moved to Chicago. So, I, so in in Dominican Republic, uh, through the health club that I had, I helped start churches in our gym. So we would start Bible studies that became churches. And then um, uh, our business, we tied 50% of our business profit to uh, outreach ministries that were... So that I saw myself in that sense until God called me to be a planter. And then um, I went to Chicago, uh, went to uh, study at Moody Bible Institute. And there, what do I do? <laughs> I do what I do. I do start a church. <laughs> In Cicero, Illinois, 10% Hispanic at that time. Now it's like 95% Hispanic. So, uh, so you know, uh, we started uh, his ministry. I mean, we had no training on church planting. It was very organic. We did what we knew what to do. And uh, that was beautiful and painful at the same time. That's another story. But then um, uh, I, I started to be discipled and mentored on a theology that is robust on reaching the margins. And uh, there was an opportunity to start a church in a very marginalized neighborhood in Chicago. And that was an experiment for me to, to strategically and intentionally uh, do that. And um, Noel Castellanos, is, who was the CEO of um, CCDA for many years, before that, he moved to Chicago, invited me to co-plant with him. That was like uh, the game changer for me. That experience of... That, that was just um, one, of, one of the most formative uh, things in my life in ministry. And um, so I, that's, I said, this is what we got to do. I was thinking a lot about Dominican Republic. This is the kind of church DR needs, this kind of mission. So when I, when I finished and planted a church in Chicago, in Chicago, uh, uh, there was three plants. Uh, one failed. <laughs> and then La Villita still uh, alive and serving uh, and, and in the church. It was the first, and within this Christian Community Development Association world, it was the first Hispanic church. Got it. And this is La Villita Community Church? <laughs> yes, La Villita yeah. Community Church. And then I went back to DR with the idea, this is the kind of church we got to plant. That was like, uh, you know, with, that was my mission. So I planted a church. I, I became the church planting director for a charismatic organization that was very missional. And I loved the missional impulse that they had. And um, so I was in charge of helping find leaders to plant churches in the 30 provinces of the Dominican Republic. So in a period of three years, uh, when I stepped out, we were able to plant 
uh, either a starting church or a church f- fully uh, started in those 30 provinces. And I was coaching them and all that. But then God called me to Center City, Santo Domingo. That was the neglected mm. place for church. And um, I just had a heart for the urban and the, um, you know, high density population and stuff like that. So we, my wife and I moved there. We started in our living room. Mm. As we knew, again, no church planting training, not even church planting language at that time. Mm. This is 1995. Mm. And so we started a church, but my idea was we have to, this church, I, I really started a church to be like, I want this church to be inspirational so that this kind of mission in urban centers, reaching the down and outs and the, and the, and the people who are disenfranchised takes priority. So uh, it's called Iglesia Comunitaria Cristiana in, in Santo Domingo. And that was, we did that for uh, almost 17 years. Mm. And then out of that, uh, because ch- uh, pastors started approaching us, say, how do you do this? Like, hey, how do you, like, we started businesses. Mm. Uh, they asked us, uh, they were coming and approaching us. So I found, I started, I prayed, I was praying, like, God, who else is doing this? And I found a Pentecostal pastor, and then I found another uh, Wesleyan guy and a Methodist, and we became friends. And they had like their smaller expression of us, and we joined and we started a network. It was just for us, and it grew uh, in those 16 years to be 10 countries and about 2,000 churches altogether that were committed to being this kind of church in the neighborhood. It's called La Red del Camino, Del Camino Network for Integral Mission in Latin America and the Caribbean. And that's when uh, we got connected with Rene Padilla, who became our mentor in that process. And that was a, oh, that took it to another level, <laughs> that, that journey. And in, in that process, um, uh, I didn't know, you know, you don't know what's missing until you, you see it somewhere. And the, the, what was missing was a, uh, a robust articulation and also a, a seamless way to show how the how this transformation connects with gospel dynamic. Um, we were very biblical. We preach Jesus. We call for conversion. But we didn't have the training and the language and the skill to know how that renewal process is uh, directly uh, through a gospel, uh, uh, gospeling uh, process. So Tim Keller, when I heard him, Aside from being uh, like a life changer for me, healing a lot of the stuff in my heart that was just under the rug for so many years. And uh, it was it, when I heard Tim Keller the first time, it was like, you know, you, you, when you back in the day, we used to say, man, I thought I, knew, I never heard the gospel before. Now, I, heard, of course, I did hear the gospel before, but I never heard it in a way that seamlessly connected it to everything. But, but again, no training. <laughs> And I try to do it as best as I can and, and be, become an imitator of Tim as best as I can. But I, I always say for, for a season of my life, I was a translator for Tim. I, I dumbed down Tim for the street. <laughs> That's what I did in the lot. So, uh, so then gospel centrality and the intentionality of gospel centrality and gospel renewal became language. And, uh, yeah, so then um, God called me back to my neighborhood where I was born and raised in New York. For 15 years, I did a prayer walk in that neighborhood. I would go to New York to take a two-week retreat and, uh, and pray, plan my preaching calendar and all that. 
and walk the streets of Washington Heights. And the churches were closed. The, you know, they were closed with gated, and but the drug dealers were open 24-7. This, this is like in the 90s and, and a lot of crime. And I had this incredible burden for my neighborhood. And I just prayed. I made it like I had everybody praying for Washington Heights. Little did I know that God was going to call me, call me back. Yeah. And that's when I moved back in 2012, uh, and then, but that's our interaction with, intersection with city to city. And I was asked to lead the efforts in New York City for city to city, which was an incredible privilege. So uh, yeah, but I so I, I led the effort of uh, of our goals to help catalyze and plant churches in New York City, and. Uh, and so I did that for 10 years and planted a church, yeah. which you were part of, yeah. Church of the Heights, yeah. as I did it. Everybody was like, how do you do that and do this? I said, bro, we Latinos, we're tri-vocational. <laughs> we're hustlers. We, we hustle. We know, <laughs> we know you can't do just one thing. <laughs> so I did that. And then God gave me a burden to bring this um, intentionally to the Latino world. Mm. And I was burning for the Hispanic church, which is very missional, mm. but doesn't have the tools and uh, all the trainings, all the privilege yeah. that as a Latino I had, mm. learning from Tim Keller and being in this church planting universe yeah. and all this. And I was like, and these guys do it with nothing, just the missional impulse. I say the Latinos plant churches just expecting that the Holy Spirit is, I think the Holy Spirit is leading me, and they, they started a jerk. <laughs> so, um, so I wanted to bring that, and we started the Latino Initiative. And uh, Miami was, um, is a key city. When you think all things Latino, Miami is the key city in the East Coast. So uh, that's why I relocated to Miami. How, how does that story of church planting that's often told in the, in the conferences, in the literature, in the networks, etc., in what ways does that exclude or um, kind of fail to account for the kind of church planting that you've experienced and that you see on the margins and you see in the Latino network, the kind of church planting you're trying to encourage? How, how, how does the story that we tell about church planting miss that activity? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question um, because um, it, it's it's one of the things that is cause somewhat of disturbance in me. <laughs> um, uh, because, uh, again, uh, when I get exposed to church planting and I realize it's, it's a whole discipline, but then you realize it's an enterprise. You know, it's got its, it's, its inner language. It's got its strategies. It's got its, its package. And, uh, and so many good things. That, I mean, when I entered that world and it started giving me language for stuff that I did, but also I saw stuff that I, oh, I wish I would have known that. Oh, man, this is great. Great stuff. But as I heard and, and saw that and, and was understanding, I also was picking up that the reality of the, of the uh, context in the margins is not computed in the design of this thing called church planting in America. And yeah, the people in the, the poor, the, 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 the immigrants, the, the homeless, or et cetera, the, the urban poor is in the language in that world, but as objects, not as subjects. So um, I kept asking the question, you know, when these scorecards and these definitions were uh, thrown on the table, where were who, there was no 
black and brown people in that table. And we have our narrative of mission. I mean, the Latino church is missional on steroids. We plan churches, as study has shown, with less resources, and and we it, proportionally we're planting more churches. And we're serious about evangelism. And we move into the places where nobody wants to move in. And that's a narrative. And the black church, the story of the black church and its its mature and historic expression of engaging the gospel and the faith with the problems of social issues and brokenness and systems. That narrative wasn't in the room that shaping how we think about church planting and why church planting and what are the scorecards and how do we measure success. So I was, I was, I felt really, I felt like this is what I felt. I felt that um, I was I was learning, but I was also being uh, stripped away from my story and the story of our people. And then when we tried to bring that to them, it felt like a violence because it was imposing these categories and measurements of success and what, what we legitimize based on the conversation and... <laughs> That uh, was shaped where we weren't in the room when when this was, um, uh, you know, this world was shaped, you know, uh, and uh, the the definitions of sustainability. When I hear the definition of sustainability in church planting, that does not compute in my story or neighborhood. Meaning getting to self-sustaining oh, in a certain like number of months. Three years. A, yeah, right. Like in three years, a church is self-sustainable because they are, that's even that's not even biblical language, self-sustainability. We are a family. But self-governing, all these things that were um, important to think about, but the way that, what does that mean in the hood? It, the question was never asked, what does that mean? And put definition in your reality for what does it mean to empowering the indigenous leader and what's the sustainability mean in your context? So, and then we define, okay, we adjust to, that wasn't, you know, and then I would go to the, I, I attend these um, assessment for church planters and my minority brothers and sisters that were there, I still remember every time I walked in, they were like, oh. We got one of us assessing us. And I was just there like oh, that observer and ended up like assessing because <laughs> they wanted that. They wanted somebody to understand the reality where they can be. They, 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 and, and then I had I started, you know, a lot of conversation with black leaders that were in the church planting world and Latino leaders and backdoor conversation. They all felt oppressed. Oppression, the feeling oppressed feeling trapped, feeling that they got to play the game was a common everywhere. And I fought with them. I said, well, that's your problem. Why do you speak up? Why do you submit to that? But then I'm like, man, it's it's not fair. It's not right. So, And does that sense of feeling trapped mean that they've, where does that come from? It's a feeling like they have, you said, play the game, that there's certain metrics, certain expectations, and I have to, in order to get what I need, to plant, I have to do. Yeah, to get what I need, to get the support, to get the training, to get the good stuff uh, that we need and, and stuff. They, they, they have to do it the way that um, uh, it satisfies those who legitimize them. Um, and, and then the people who legitimize them a lot sometimes don't know jack about their reality, right, in context. So it's not that... Don't do it. It's like do it in a posture of learner. Let's be learners. 
So somebody, you know, asked me, how do you Latinos plan churches with our average external giving for a Latino church plan in the United States is $12,000. Okay. Compared to $48,000, I think it's what's the average. And so I, and I said, how do you guys do that? Man, it's just, yeah, it's about time you ask us, like, for us to teach you. Yeah. We can teach you some things, right? Yeah. Um, so how do we have a cohort of a shared learning? We we haven't had we haven't had to fight our way into uh, get the content and the richness that is developed in dominant culture, but what we bring to the table is not there. So one of the things we're doing city city committed hardcore committed and the Latino Initiative and city city New York is that that story and narrative has to be brought in and reshape how we think about church planting and church and city renewal and church renewal and all that kind of thing. It's exciting. It's not easy. So make this kind of concrete for us. Can you give me a, like, tell me a story. Give me an example of ministry, a ministry expression that from your point of view, from the point of view of marginalized communities is a huge success that from maybe the point of view of the kind of dominant narrative about church planting and sustainability and et cetera, wouldn't be necessarily by those metrics, by those standards, wouldn't be considered a successful church planning story. Well, my, my favorite church in New York (laughs) is, uh, one of my favorite churches is, uh, uh, a young Latino Dominican leader, um, who, uh, the guy bivocational doing his master's degree (laughs) and plants a church in the Bronx, right? His relational universe is not a universe that supports church planting financially or anything like that. So he, um, God calls him to plant church in the Bronx. He's from Washington Heights. Incredibly sharp guy. Knows how to build teams, has a passion for his community. He activates leaders. And the guy, uh, I introduced him to a uh, particular denomination because he's orphaned, right? So you know, there's there's alignment and beliefs and mission and that stuff. And um, the level of success and impact that this ministry has had in a matter of four years, going to five, it's, it's phenomenal. And growth, baptisms, impact in the neighborhood, leadership development and everything like that. When you when when you peek into the financial support that that denomination has given, and compared to what I know, because I know this, I know these organizations, what they give some white guy that just moved into New York City, and and gives a nice talk and and knows how to articulate the language of the church planting world, play that game, and gets all this money. Like with no hesitation, and uh, my brother. Dominican, native New Yorker, brown, planting, you know, Hispanic, bilingual, it just gets crumbs and he is neglected within that world. He's not, you know, and, and, and processing with him, like, you know, man, stay in the game. We got to change realities. We can't change it from the outside, change the game. But it's, it's like... It's like why? Why this? Why? Why? Why am I treated this way? Um, and yet, is is uh, one of our most successful bivocational church plants in my ten years of New York City that we've had in New York City. Yet, why? 
even with that level of success, he's he's sidelined, neglected. He's not even highlighted. And the other guys from that tribe, COVID hit, and they split. He stayed. He's from New York. His church is growing in the midst of COVID. So, you you know, that kind of story, um, I hear it many times. Um, another story is one of my heroes of Washington Heights, Church Planter. Um, he's no longer there. Uh, uh, but this guy, indigenous to our, uh, and, and, you know, and he had support. He, he, he knew how to enter the church planting world and acquire the language and submit to, humbly submit to a very gifted guy, leader. Um, and when, when, when we were able to look back at his years doing church planting, the toll it took on him to, to uh, be in that world uh, playing the game and submitting to the structures and all these impositions that were happening. It took such a toll on him that he couldn't take it anymore. And, um, and you know, it, it, it's just you hear those stories and um, of actual church plants in New York City, and uh, that, that or it's painful. It's just painful uh, to, to hear. Now myself, right, now— you know, I entered that where I church Church of the Heights in and um and I I didn't want to be soloed and siloed and and it originally was part of a tribe, and the language, the way of going about didn't it was uh, Washington was an anomaly for that, but I was it was always like trying to fit the, the what I was doing in the Heights to this dominant narrative that wasn't shaped with the story of the Heights in mind. Now, I'm a rebel, so I, I didn't submit to that. But it was, it was, why do I have to have this fight all the time? And my other brother, who was African-American, the other only African-American within that tribe, who loved that tribe, the fellowship was beautiful. These were friends in my butt. They became my friends. But when it came to our ecclesiology and our, you know, he. It is to hear the cry of feeling neglected, oppressed, imposed upon. It was constantly happening. So, um, so yeah, I'm. You know, sometimes I'm like, I'm done with that. I, I, I'm going to do my thing with Latinos and bye bye. But we can't do that because you know we're a family. We got to stick together. So yeah, those are those are things that I. Uh, uh, and one one more thing in the Hispanic world is that. Um, you know, the Hispanic spirituality is so rich, and our theology from Latin America is so rich. Yet because of this uh, way of doing ecclesiology and mission, uh, it's, it's a form of colonialism. So we, we don't express the churches that are planted in the Hispanic uh, the world that enter this, this uh, world of church planting. Suddenly they don't sound Hispanic. They're not addressing the issues of the Hispanic community. They're not appealing to our rich heritage, our, of our spiritual rich heritage. And, and it's like you feel like you were colonized to be legitimized. And that's painful, too. Um, you know, so, so those are the things we're trying to confront in, in our journey. Practically, what needs to happen to get those people 
who are isolated on the margins into the center of the conversation. And what does it take to do that? What happens when that conversation shifts? What's the good that comes when these stories that are on the peripheral become a part of the story in the center? Well, for that to happen, first of all, there has to be a metanoia repentance moment from the center to have, uh, it's not like, oh, let's correct and now let's invite. No, there's got to be repentance. There's got to be a moment of like, man, this is like, actually so anti-Jesus. Jesus was like Galilee, Nazareth. He's, he's our, our hero. Our leader is from the margins, you know, and he died outside the gate in the most marginalized place in Golgotha, the garbage dump. Our faith is shaped there. So a repentance that we, how do we dare uh, go about ministry and shape our theology and our mission without the narrative of the margin, when our, the origins of our faith are there? So that repentance needs to happen. And I think that posture of repentance leads to, uh, to when, when we do connect, when we do try to build bridges, that opens the doors for reconciliation for uh, being able to talk about the pain that that has caused. And my, my experience is that that open conversation has led to uh, uh, being in the room as equals. And then when we're in the room as equals, dealing with the themes of mission in the city, it's beautiful to see how the people in the margins and their experience and expertise and grit is shaping the guys that came in with um, from 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 privilege and and and, and you know and and power, and uh, seeing that the change happening in them when they hear those stories. So what, the beautiful thing is when you get them in the room and they start as equals. It's not like getting them in the room so you can learn my way, right? But it's getting in the room and I need to learn from you and you need to learn from me. And, and they become friends there. The way the churches that are in uh, places of the of majority culture, they're planted. Now they're planted very aware of this other reality and the need to partner with that reality and the way they shape their church. So I think uh, 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 repentance, a posture of repentance, uh, reconciliation, acknowledging uh, that, that process, and then together... Uh, generating a conversation around the room of what is a new paradigm that's, that comes out of this repentance. So if it's repentance and now we go back to <laughs> whatever it is that we went back to, uh, that's not it. It's repentance towards a new paradigm. And then the new paradigm is let's have, let's think how we can build this together. I think that that's... Um, in practice, for us, has been uh, our training uh, cohorts. We are very intentional to have uh, uh, to have both worlds intersect as we reflect on theology and mission, as we think about ministry, the the practical aspect of ministry, the mission, mission missional. Uh, tools and, and expressions of our theology and then the contextualization and all that. To do it together in the room, we've seen, like, it's dynamite. When we see, like, the African-Americans from the Kojic heritage with uh, uh, Presbyterian 
and a uh, Pentecostal Latino together in the rooms uh, thinking about their city, right? I'm thinking here Jersey City is one. And what comes out of that, the richness. And then as a facilitator, you know, we're there like, oh, my gosh. It's like a learning. As every day is we go in the room to learn as well because we weren't hearing those voices. We weren't facilitating the space for that. And uh, it's it's really beautiful. It's messy. It's messy. If you don't want mess, don't go this route. But um, yeah, that's that's what we've experienced and and le- learning. We, we're learning. There's a way of talking about diversity in church planting, especially in cities, that's really practical. Meaning, we know the city is big and diverse, and no one kind of church or no one denomination can reach everything. Just practically speaking. Yeah. And so it's it's logistically a good idea to get a bunch of different networks involved so that you can reach the whole city. But you're not describing like a logistical upside. You're not saying you go do it the way you've always done it and you go do it, but we'll do it together. You're saying there's something that changes all of us and should change the paradigm for all of us when we're doing this as a real collaboration. Yes, yes, that's, yeah, that's really good because what you're saying it's not like we shouldn't, we should all not be the same anymore out of that interaction. And that it doesn't mean I abandon my tradition, as a, it enriches my tradition and what I bring to the table because now I'm in interaction with this other story that I grew up in my tradition neglecting it or resenting it or like, like, uh, or demonizing it or whatever. Suddenly, because I open myself to that to learn and, and the city and the city we got to learn together. I go back to my my world as a reformatic. I'm a reformatic. I'm a reform charismatic, and it it's, it enriches me. Like the, my, for example, my experience with the Wesleyans in in um, in New York City, right? Uh, my experience with the Wesleyans and the way I planted church lights was it was it just gave me a, a different perspective. It enriched my. Uh, my mission, you know, and uh, so, that, yeah, that's those are things that we need to cultivate. You've articulated very clearly that for a lot of people who minister and serve outside of the sort of majority culture expectations or systems feel like they have to adapt to those systems to be legitimized and to get the resources they need. Um, so with that in mind, I've heard you say in a couple of contexts that someone told you sometime that the gospel should make you more Dominican and not make you less Dominican. Oh, yeah. What does that mean to you? What does that do for you? And, and what can that, that, that way of thinking do for the people who are listening? Yeah, that was a very personal moment for me. Very liberating. When Theo Visser, he, he's, a, he's, an, he's a very veteran in intercultural church in the Netherlands, and he came for a City City event, and we, we connected with this idea of diversity, diversity of cultures in oneness. That the, the mystery of the gospel is the dividing wall is done. We're one people. But does that oneness mean that we lose our cultural identity? No. This new oneness is the richness of these cultural identities mixed there, right? So, uh, and then he said, do you know, Robert, that the gospel makes you more Dominican? If it doesn't make you more Dominican, it's something else. When he said that, it was like, oh, my God, it touched, it touched a nerve for me because my original journey in the gospel made me less Dominican. 
right? I learned my first song that I learned to express my love for God and singing was a, it was a European, you know, song from, and they called it sacred and my music, they called it folklore and or, or worldly. <laughs> So, so I was conditioned in my faith, the way I read scripture and interacted by dissecting it in categories and points rather than just story. And my culture is stories about storytelling. But I suddenly I'm conditioned to read the scripture as a theological treatise that I dissect and, you know, so it, it, it stripped me from the richness of my culture that I am as a Dominican to become uh, Christian. <laughs> so uh, uh, to to hear that, so so, uh, and I, I I think the the the, uh, the gospel redeems cultures, and brings uh, the the beauty of the diversity of who God is in His richness is expressed through the different cultures and languages. So we got a better picture of God when everybody brings when the gospel touches you and you bring the fullness of your culture, redeem now to enrich the beauty of what the gospel is in the gospel beloved community. And I, I really think my identity is in Jesus, right? But I'm Dominican, right? And that's very, that's very important for me and for God who made me Dominican, right? So when, if growing in the gospel makes me less than this, there's something wrong about that gospel. It's a gospel that has been couched in an idolatrous way in a culture that made that culture superior to others and the standard by which other cultures are legitimized, which means then that we, we present the, the gospel in an idolatrous way that strips people from their identity. So part of being gospel-centered is acknowledging the danger of that and, 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 Helping people discover Jesus within the language and the culture and the smell and the music and the sound and the environment in which God formed them. Encountering the Jesus there. And I think that just brings a a more beautiful picture of what Jesus is to the cities of this world. Thank you so much. That's a great place to stop. Robert, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks. It was great. Thank you for the opportunity. Tune in next week for a great conversation with Nilza Oyola about the community-based model of church planting, the unique contributions of women in church planting, and the importance of drawing from your own cultural and spiritual heritage in ministry. How to Reach the West Again is a production of Redeemer City to City. This episode was produced, written, and hosted by Brandon O'Brien. Our associate producer is Braden Gregg. The interview was recorded at Roosevelt Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona, and edited by Lee Jerkins. Redeemer City to City is a nonprofit organization co-founded by Tim Keller and supported by generous people like you. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, leave us a review, and consider making a gift to support this kind of work at RedeemerCityToCity.com slash give.